Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bird Shit. Today, we are talking to a super cool guy that we met in Canada, and that sounded like a very lackluster introduction. So, But he's super cool. I'll pick up on your lack of enthusiasm. Um, his Thanks, name, His name is Andreas Jimenez. Uh, he's a biologist who was born in Costa Rica with a fascination with traditional livelihoods, environmental problem solving, and finding any and all creatures. He loves snakes and reptiles and works with flying reptiles and also has an online course for beginning bird watchers called Beginner's Guide to Birdwatching, Finding Birds in Happiness. Who doesn't want that? I know. He used to work with artisanal fishermen and sea turtles, which is amazing. And he views his biggest environmental accomplishment as rescuing thousands of snakes, frogs, and sloths from the streets of Costa Rica. And he also leads a group of NGOs to ban shrimp trawling in Costa Rica successfully. So he is going to bring a lot of cool, fun facts, obviously um, a little bit more around the reptile side, but we will definitely be focusing on birding today. We met Andreas because he works for Bird Studies Canada, and early on in our podcast life cycle, he posted something on the Bird Studies Canada site about some piping plover tattoos, and I was like, oh my gosh, we love those tattoos, and then he sent us some, and so instant pen pals, if you send us tattoos, we're down. Yeah. Actually, if you send us anything, just send us anything. Yeah, we pretty much, just not bags of poop, preferably. <laughs> I'll take body hair, though. Oh, oh, okay. Like any part of the body hair? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna close any doors on that one. I'll leave it open. <laughs> All right. Well, I know what to get you for Christmas. Just random pieces of hair that I find. I'm just gonna start making sweaters out of random pieces of hair. Oh yeah. You could have like a whole little sort of collage effect of hair. Environmentally friendly. <laughs> Except when it gives you some disease. Yeah, it's itchy. All right, cool. Well, uh, we are going to go talk to Andreas now. So can you tell us a little more about Bird Studies Canada and what you do for them? I'm going to back up one second, and I'm just going to say, welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You made it to the big time, and now you're you're on the air. You're drinking rum. Thank you, Sarah and Mo, for having me. <laughs> At your podcast. So how do I pronounce the name of your podcast? With or without the bird? <laughs> I know. It sucks to like try and search for like bird sh- Like it doesn't work <laughs> out. So, I mean, we just call it bird shit, but it's kind of weird because it's like, it's, you can't really search for it. Well, thank you for having me on Bird Shit Podcast. Oh, you are very I'm welcome. We're excited honored. to have you. Well, I'm glad you look at it as an honor. Can you tell us more about Bird Studies Canada and their mission and what you do for them? Bird Studies Canada, surprisingly for many, is the biggest bird-related charity in Canada. We are quite big, but somehow we've gone a bit under the radar in the last years. I think mostly because a lot of biologists were really focused on the work they were doing, especially in the studies section of it. They were very engaged into doing uh, breeding bird atlases for the last 60 years. We, we started as a tiny bird observatory run by volunteers with two or three staff. So next year is our 60th anniversary. 
And yes, exactly. I'll drink twelve-year-old yeah. rum for that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we, should, we should have the rum for the sixty years. But okay, you guys yeah. should come to Toronto way earlier than that. Yeah, for sure. Just saying. For sure. Uh, just don't bring plants this time. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well. My poor plants confiscated at the border. Pour okay. some out for him. So besides that, we are completely dedicated to the conservation of birds. And we do that through education. We do that through science-based advocacy. We do that through innovative solutions. And we also do that through sound science. We do a lot of scientific production. We want to know what is the state of birds. We actually helped release a very big report this year called the State of Canada Birds which is not showing some positive trends to some groups. So grassland birds, aerial insectivores, and long-range migrants like shorebirds are really on decline. But on the other hand, raptors and waterfowl like ducks and geeses are going up and their populations are recovering thanks to all the conservation efforts, including turkeys. Turkeys have also recovered after being extirpated in Ontario. Wow. But... Um, besides all of this, in my particular case, I am the urban program coordinator. That means everything and that means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I see my day-to-day as enhancing the experience of nature in the city. What I strive for is for people to reconnect with nature and in the process learn about birds and do something to save them. We do that through a lot of outreach events, like the Toronto Bird Celebration. We have 40 events. Last year, we brought out 6,000 people to our events. Yeah, that's awesome. 50% of them were new to bird watching. Holy cow, even cooler. You're converting. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm preaching. I'm certainly preaching. (laughs) Yeah, man, preach birds. Besides that, uh, we're trying to get other projects on the ground. We have Project Swiftwatch. Basically, people walk around the city look for swifts, and they report any chimneys that they used to roost. Why is that? We try to use that information, bring it to the city of Toronto, and we're building uh, an early alert system for developers. So if they're refurbishing a chimney or if they're demolishing it, they are informed that they have a species of risk. Funny story, Bird Studies Canada helped create the first artificial chimney in Canada in the Maritimes, functional chimney. So for those of you that don't know Chimney Swift, I reckon there are many. I didn't know Chimney Swift before I started working with Bird Studies Canada. Chimney Swift are aerial insectivores. They're this fascinating, small to medium-sized bird, literally like a cigar with wings. They fly really, really fast. They catch insects, and they used to nest in trees because all their toes are looking to the front, so they can only perch inside hollow trees. Given that there aren't that many hollow trees in Toronto, they started using chimneys, same as in the U.S. Uh, And so after a while, chimneys started getting capped. We started changing the way we heat our places. And so all these chimneys started going down. So that meant chimney swifts started going down really fast. In the Maritimes, there was a project in a very important roosting site for 1,200 or 1,300 chimneys swift, and they were going to demolish it. One thing led to the other, and now there's a fantastic standing alone chimney there for the Swifts, and they're using it. So the funny thing about wow. chimney Swifts is that not a lot of the chimneys have been successful. Many things have been tried, and very little have given very good results. This one did. Way to go, fake chimneys. Yeah. yeah. Okay, did you have like a chimney company build the fake chimney? 
indeed it required architects and it required engineers and the price of it was very elevated the wow. risk here was ginormous right you invested in this whole bunch of money in this chimney and then you're sitting there just like going please chimney swift please chimney please use this thing please 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 use this thing if you build it they will come yeah and they went in and then you go like oh they did come but that's the thing. There aren't that many successful structures that have worked with chimney swifts. One of the keys was it was like a similar height to the other chimney. And the other chimney was left there until this one wasn't built. So it would act as a visual cue for them to huh. return to it. That's wow. so smart. So smart. Yeah, right? There's some smart people there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I've heard. I heard yeah, yeah. smart people over there. Yeah, exactly. So as somebody who is basically responsible for getting people birding in an urban area, what do you personally find the most interesting about birding in an urban area such as Toronto? That's a very easy question. It's the surprise. It's just when you come out of the subway and suddenly you see a snowy owl, a bird that spends most of its time with polar bears, you go like, oh my God. How, how are you? Why, why are you? And then you just enjoy it. And it's the constant surprises. And Toronto is a fantastic city to go bird watching. Well, apparently you got snowy owls in the middle of winter. I mean, you probably have polar bears too. You're yeah. just oh, them. man, I'm, I'm, I really want to. I've been trying, but you know, <laughs> like one of my goals is to see a polar bear in Canada while I'm still here. I really want to see one. I do think you guys should start like Bear Studies Canada and <laughs> have, have you could be the urban coordinator for that. <laughs> <laughs> might take me a bit farther north, but I like where you're going, Mo. I like where you're going. Travel. Uh, I mean, it is true. Like, I, I actually took up bird watching as a result of living in an urban area, just as kind of like this escape from the bane of city life. But I don't think a lot of people think about urban areas as being birding hotspots. What would you use as a pitch for somebody in an urban area to take up bird watching as a hobby? Well, first I would tell them, that it's very good for their health. Then I would tell them that it will help them read the world around them, that if they understand birds and if they see them, they will be able to read the seasons, they will be able to read the day, they will be able to read the nature around them. So I was called for an interview at CBC because a bird was bombing the good citizens of Toronto, a red-winged blackbird. Oh, yeah. Yeah, red-winged blackbirds. Exactly. Happens every year. But what this truly means is that people are not reading the red-winged blackbird, right? They go there with their phones, and then they hear a bird, right? And it's a bit agitated. They, they, they don't get a hint, right? And they keep on going with their phone, and then the bird starts flapping, right? Like, right? I'm very angry. <laughs> and they're still not getting a hint. And then it starts moving and jumping in the tree, and now it seems more, even more angry, and no one is getting a hint. And then, boom, they're bombed in the head, right? That basically means that we've lost our ability to read the world around us. Interesting thing about that is that that's an ability you can use everywhere, in every aspect of your life, reading your family, reading your friends, reading your, your colleagues at work, reading the situations that you're working on. It's an ability that is incredibly valuable, and it's only developed if you have keen observation, and that's something that birdwatching teaches you. And finally, I will put them to see a bird with binoculars. Uh, just for a moment, seeing, you know, an indigo bunting or seeing a black burning warbler or seeing a snowy owl and looking for it. And that, I think, I think we all have a bird watcher within us. We all have a bird lover 
within us. We just need that one opportunity in which we run into one bird that catches our attention. Sometimes that bird just smacks right into you because you're not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> like the red-winged blackbirds indeed. Yeah. 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 So for people who wanted to get started doing this, what advice would you give them? Because I feel like people who live in an urban area, they may not think of like, okay, where do I go to see birds? And they might not think, man, I really wish there was a great coordinator in Toronto putting these events together. Who would have thought, you know? Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the ad there. Um, <laughs> besides looking for this great coordinator in Toronto, my second advice would be to get outside, to get out there and trying to start seeing birds. So everything I know about birds, I learned through a bird guide and spending time outdoors. I reckon that not everyone will have that amount of determination or grit or interest. If you are someone that is starting, I would recommend to get some buddies, like finding a group, a community, a part of the group that you, a grandparent, a friend, someone that is kind of uh, into it and then help them walk with you a bit by the hand and just someone that makes it easy, right? Because if you get caught on the names and the competition and this is that and that is that, it can be overwhelming and then you're not interested. If you just feel it and see it as an experience, then you might get hooked into it. And so if you find someone to do it with, try to find someone that is just enjoying the birds regardless of the name they have, regardless of the ID, and regardless if you can ID them or not. I would definitely try to see them with binoculars because it really changes your experience. I know they're not easily accessible at all times, so I would recommend that. I'm trying to solve that problem in Toronto right now. I mean, that's something that I think is like a barrier for people getting involved because if you want nice binoculars, they can be expensive, which isn't accessible to everyone. Or you can exactly. be like Sarah and just squint for the first six months you start birding. Yep. Well, that's what I used to do. My yep. best friend, I got into birding because of two reasons. Snakes were not around and I was looking <laughs> for snakes. <laughs> and that is also something about birds in the city. They are everywhere and they are loud and they're stunning. So after I couldn't find snakes because they were hiding, then I looked into birds. And the other thing is that my best friend at the time, her name is Nancy, sending her a big hug from Toronto. Um, she was really into birding. And so she would take me with her all the time. And she had this fancy Swarovskis. Uh, Swarovskis are a type of binoculars for those of you that don't know. Ooh. Yeah. So she had this fancy Swarovskis, but I was always birding by eye, just looking at the birds from far away, using my eyes. And she would get very annoyed because I would nail the ID first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So I did it for a year or two just by looking at things, but I was so determined to know what they were that I just kept on going until I went to South America and got my first pair of binoculars. Nice. Later stolen, but I got to see an Andean condor with them. And yeah, good bird, huge wing. Oh, that's so cool. It's very cool. I need to see more raptors in my life. They're cool. I would recommend Costa Rica doing raptor migration. Guys, the skies are just covered in birds with thousands of thousands, which makes it also very annoying because you have no idea what species they are. Mm. Uh, so you look at them and you go like, oh yeah, that's a whole bunch of hawks. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we were just talking about how hard hawks can be to differentiate between each other. 
I also yeah. think that every time I'm out and I see a bird that I don't recognize, I'm like, well, that's probably a lifer. That's probably some super rare bird that I'm never going to see again. Like that <laughs> would just be my luck, you know? And then it's, you know, it's probably just like a house sparrow, but in my mind, I'm like, yeah, just ruined that lifetime moment. But I think you're right. I think there's something about just the appreciation of birds overall, especially like we were talking about earlier, like the sad news coming out about one in four birds basically being gone in the last 50 years. It's like, you got to see the birds that you can while you can. I would like to suggest an idea for today's podcast. Oh, yeah? Why don't we ask our listeners what would get them motivated into doing bird watching in the city? Or what would you ask them? Because that would be very good information for me. So what would you ask your listeners about urban bird watching? Because what makes me tick right now is to understand who is the best person to approach, what is the pitch for them, and how can I get them into birds? That is what makes me tick these days. Especially for younger generations, because birding is generally associated with retired people. You think? Yes, old, <laughs> white, retired people. We and, love them. We yeah, love them. Respect your elders, man. Yeah. But it's something that I think is truly accessible to anyone who can get outdoors. I think it's the concept of getting people more involved in the environment in general. And I think if you can connect people with that environmental concern, I think you can connect them with birding as well. I truly think that news like the one we had over the weekend they are all connected to one basic aspect. We are disconnected from nature. Mm -hmm. We don't understand the general rules. We don't know why a red-winged blackbird would attack someone. And we think it's because it's attacking the good citizens and not because it's desperately defending one little spot left for it to grow mm -hmm. and to raise a family. And we are so disconnected that we just don't, don't see it. Is that disconnect really what drives you to be so passionate about your work with people in urban environments? Is that really like your drive or is there something else that drives you? I've slowly coming to, I'm slowly coming to accept that that's something that really drives me. I wanted to be a biologist since I was eight years old. And then uh, I had a little phase in which I wanted to be a fireman. Then I went to priest for a couple of years. Yes, priest. But then eventually I became a biologist. And I always dream about working in conservation. My drive was to be able to walk in a forest when I was 19 and see the things I love. I think that is a, a very self-indulgent drive. But I think all the drives are self-indulgent at the bottom of them. I, I recognize that the connection that people have to nature is, is the center of all of these. Yeah, I think it's great that you can take what you say is like a singular self-motivated drive, but in order to achieve that goal for yourself, there's so much larger things in play that you are participating in on like this wider scale to like make that possible. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I don't think yours is as self-centered as like someone who's like, I'm gonna be the CEO of a large <laughs> bank. Like, I'm going to own my own island and that's yeah. where I'm going to have all my things that I love. No, no, no. But wait, 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 wait. I've been dreaming about owning my own forest now. <laughs> we could share that forest. Might, yeah. might take me a lot of saving right now. Yeah, a lot of work. But since coming to Canada in the last two years, I've discovered that one of my dreams is, and I think is the biggest environmental legacy I can do for the world is buying and stewarding forest. Absolutely. Thinking about that, so you're a Costa Rican and you're living in Canada. Yeah. Um, interesting choice in terms of climate 
yeah. <laughs> differences. Completely backwards. I know. I know. <laughs> I regularly question my life decisions. <laughs> Uh, we had this great conversation with you when we came to visit in Toronto around race and birding. What hmm. has your experience been like as a minority in what has historically been a primarily white male hobby? It's quite interesting. You know, um, I had the lovely opportunity of joining a group called the Feminist Bird Club. It was fantastic because I was wondering what feminist bird watching was. And I got an opportunity to taste it myself. And I, I see it. And I see how even though some some people would have the desire of making it more inclusive, they would miss the mark. Because there's there's this culture that has been generated during years of years of years of doing things one way, and it's not bad. It just means that we've done it one way. Sidetracking that or going backwards or going in a different direction will just have a big persistence. Um, not because it's bad, not because it's good, it's just because the way things are. And I think the same thing comes to race. 50 years ago, we had people from Germany, people from England uh, going to Costa Rica to discover the birds and create bird guides and collect the species, send them to the museums that later on were destroyed during the Second World War and we lost all these specimens, right? That's how the environmental movement started in Costa Rica, by people coming from abroad, bringing the way that things are or the way that things were for them into a completely different context, right? Uh, with indigenous people and with campesinos and with tropical forest. And so that's the way I learned. In my case, it's different. It's me, a Latin American, coming to Canada to work in conservation. So it's, it's completely opposite. Usually it's me competing with people from the UK or some other places in Costa Rica to get those jobs. And so the experience here has been different. Canadians are amazing people. They're very lovely. Uh, they're very open. So it's been incredibly welcoming. But at the same time, the amount of people of color and immigrants that are taking part of bird watching is very reduced. And so take the names, for example, Canada Warbler. Canada geese, Tennessee warbler. Mm -hmm. It's a migratory species. And if it yeah. would have been found there, they would have named it Colombian warbler, right? So even the names are a barrier for some people to access. Um, now we can have, in the apps we use, we can have names in Spanish. Now we can have some other common names and that helps. But it is still a bit of resistance towards making it more culturally relevant in some places. In Toronto, I've had experiences where people just think that I eat wimbrels because <laughs> I'm from Latin America. And of course, the guys that are responsible for the wimbrel decline is not the people in the U.S. hunting them. No, it's me eating wimbrels in Costa Rica. It literally made no sense to me when you told me that story. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And it has happened with many other things and in many other ways. And so it kind of makes you feel a bit alienated or it makes you feel a bit not belonging, right? When you are accused of eliminating a species when you mostly eat chicken. <laughs> and then you even <laughs> Yeah, chickens chickens are fine. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And when you have to explain, well, dude, you know, um <clears throat> I, I eat chicken mostly, usually in KFC. Yeah, we, we do have KFCs in Costa Rica. It's it's a thing we have. <laughs> then when I was in Costa Rica, I had this Australian lady. Oh God, I had so many stories. And that is not good. I think that, that I have this many stories. It's not a reflection yeah. that is a friendly environment. I, I was in Costa Rica and this Australian girl comes and says, do you, do you guys have Google here? 
<laughs> what? What? <laughs> oh, that's so scary. You're like, no, no. What's Google? No, no. We Alta Vista, maybe. Um, no Google, no, Mm-mm, no. But Dang. my email is at Gmail, though. So maybe. <laughs> and so. I don't know. There's many stories. Also, when I was in Costa Rica, this guy from the Netherlands, he was he couldn't understand why you would be friendly to poachers that were stealing turtle eggs. And I was mm. trying to explain to him that when you have four or five kids and you have no alternative to finding food for them, at least I would never hesitate on killing a turtle or shooting a peccary or stealing some eggs to feed my family. I would do it uh, in the blink of an eye. And so I was trying to pass this idea, but in his brain from a developed country in the Netherlands, he was like, but no, that is illegal. You cannot do that. You should never do that. And they should be prosecuted. And I can totally understand his viewpoint, but it's still a very biased viewpoint from someone that comes from from privilege. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, my experience has been that, trying to understand people's privilege and on the other hand, those that have no privilege. So I can work with both. And yeah, you encounter both in an urban area. Yes, you encounter both in an urban area and, and much more. And so if, if you're not open-minded to understand that for some people, birds mean one thing, for some other people, conservation means another thing. And for other people, climate change doesn't exist. And you still got to be able to have an honest conversation with each one of them. You're just screwed. That is a really tricky line to walk for sure. Like how do you, how do you make it accessible to some people without alienating, you know, another group? Yeah. That's, you got a tough job, buddy. That's not easy. Yeah. Their political views, their religious views. So yeah. And sometimes the door to birds. I remember at a booth in Toronto, uh, my, my best friend is from, from Pakistan. You guys met him, Junaid. I'm sending a big hug to Junaid right now. He, we were working with some people from East Asia and this kid only spoke Urdu and he was trying to remember the name of the bird he had when he was a kid, his pet. And so the tour for him to understand the birds of Canada in his new country was his pet. And he pronounced the name of the pet in Urdu very close to Baji. <laughs> he had a Baji. Yeah. But and so cute. they are very cute. And for him, it was the gate to blue jays and cardinals and the birds from this place and a new connection. That's awesome. So one thing I feel like all birders can connect on is their like favorite birding moment. Can you tell us about your favorite birding moment, either in Canada or Costa Rica or in South America? I don't have a favorite birding moment i have many memorable birding moments and that is funny i i was thinking what is my spark bird what is the bird that i saw that got me into bird watching i've read so many stories and some guy said it was you know a peregrine falcon going through a city and i was like right come on come on andres you gotta think this hard you have to have your spark bird nothing sparked i couldn't remember anything but i remember a lot of moments that were very essential in me discovering birds and my relationship to them. One was my first ruby throated hummingbird. So I was having coffee back at home, back in Costa Rica, in the middle of the city. 
And there aren't that many hummingbird species in the middle of the city. We have maybe five or ten. Sorry, people of Ontario. Yeah, I said five or ten is not <laughs> I many. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but we have like 40 or 15 Costa Rica. So, yes, I'm bragging a bit now. That's I the humblest birding brag I've ever heard. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we only got like five or ten hummingbird yeah. species in the city. <laughs> so, you know, I was sitting there looking at a tree, a, a cast tree, which is a Central American fruit that is absolutely delicious. But anyhow, so I was looking at the tree and suddenly a little bird kind of perched and it had a very ruby throat. And I run and I said, like, this, this is something I've never seen. And I looked through the binoculars and I found out it was a hummingbird. So when I was looking at the bird guide, I found the hummingbird and it said it was migratory. I was like, a migratory hummingbird? In my mind, that couldn't exist. The same thing as monarchs shouldn't exist, mm-hmm. right? These tiny things that are traveling from Canada to Costa Rica. And so that was memorable to me, thinking that this tiny bird could go from six grams to 12 and then flap its wings 52 times per second in a nine-hour straight fly through the Gulf of Mexico. That's nuts. That is absolutely nuts. That is a workout. I'm feeling like I did nothing today. That little bird does so much. It has to double its weight. Do we have to double our weight? Uh, In winter, winter, maybe. Yeah, in winter, I do. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm working on that right now. Okay, so that one's one. The second one I've already told you. So it's my snowy owl. I, I was, since I came to Canada, I was completely set into finding two things. A massive rattlesnake, which I did find, and then a snowy owl. And I remember I kind of fell in love with snowy owls when I saw Guardians of Gahul. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. And the animation was awesome. And I kind of fell in love with snowy owls. I was set. I was determined. And I took close between 30 and 35 hours between minus 15 degrees and minus 30 um, centigrades, by the way. Would you guys translate that to Fahrenheit? Uh, if I could, I would. It's cold. <laughs> Probably like 10 degrees. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like below freezing for sure. Yes. Very, very cold. So I spent like 35 hours. I dragged my best friend into it. And I was looking for it. I went all around the lake. I went to many places. There was one reported at a Costco parking lot. And I went to that Costco looking for it. (laughs) And it was there in the morning and wasn't there in the afternoon. Yes. Anyhow, this bird was very annoying. When spring was coming, I went to Downsview subway station i came out of the station and there was this fantastic female just there staring at me and that was a moment i will never forget and then there's two more moments uh keep them coming before yeah i'm gonna give you four so a spectacle owl we call them autopopos because they go (laughs) probably someone that can actually imitate an autopopo is just suffering right now when it's listening to me. <laughs> and it's one of the biggest owls we have in Costa Rica. It's absolutely stunning. And it's a tropical species of owl, meaning it's very agile flyer. You just never listen to it. You never, never listen to it flying. And it's very adapted to hunting other owls, to hunting bats, and to hunting things that fly during the night. It's amazing. So when I was with my wife, we went to this national park called Santa Rosa. This is a dry forest. So I I always go into the bathrooms because they have water. And with water, I find snakes and scorpions and frogs. 
we went into the bathrooms and then we came out and we turned around. And there was one of them, one Oropopo, two meters away from me at my face height. And it was completely silent and I was looking at it and I just thought that animal was a spirit and not an animal. And it was looking at me and we were like, was it, was it there when we came here or did it come? And this is during the day. This is not during the night. Oh my God. And so it's so close that I can take the best photo ever. And as I am pulling my camera, it was gone. Oh my gosh. But you have it. You have that in your mind forever. It's, I can, every time I close my eyes, I can see that Oropopo. Yeah. Spectacle That's Owl, amazing. one of my favorite birds ever. And I, I do have some other stories. I have a lot more. But yeah, I think those are the four. Did I give you four? You gave us three? <laughs> I give you the four one. So my wife, she proposed to me when we were getting married. And she took me to a national park. She knows I love this. And she was going to propose. And she had a pin, a golden pin of indigenous art in Costa Rica she was going to give me as she proposed. And suddenly comes a saber-winged hummingbird. Look for that one, Sarah. Saber-winged. <laughs> Violet Sarah's saber-winged. our designated researcher on yeah, exactly. podcast. Everyone, everyone listening, go to Google right now and look for a violet saber wing. And so when she's about to do it, and I'm looking at the forest, a violet saber wing comes and flies right in front of us, looks at her, looks at me, and leaves. <gasps> and suddenly, yeah, and suddenly she sees the perfect moment for our proposal. She puts her hand into her pocket, and she forgot the pin in the car. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite stories. Oh, that's so good. That's awesome. Yeah. That hummingbird is so beautiful. It is. It's the biggest hummingbird we have over there, and it's absolutely stunning. Like, I can't imagine seeing that violet color in person. I've had one of those in my hand that was, that unfortunately, hit a window, but oh. I managed to help it fly away. It makes me feel like I need to get outside of just, like, the U.S. and go some do some birding. You know, back at home, I was committed to discover everything I could discover in Costa Rica before leaving. And now that I'm in Canada, I can't feel the same. The things we have in our backyards, things that cross through your backyards when it's migration time that are coming from the boreal forest and going all the way, all the neotropical ones coming back to the boreal forest to breed. Oh my God, the things you have in your backyard, is they're just amazing. So I don't know, I think you're in a good spot. Yeah, I know. I think I need to, yeah, I think I need to just hone in on that, especially because we have like a lot of stuff near the Detroit River. That's a really good spot. Yeah, you have the things that come during the winter. You have the things that return during spring migration. You have the things that are coming down during the fall. And then you have all the local diversity, right? You have those barred owls and you have a whole bunch of waterfowl around. And it's a good place. Okay, yeah. I have a random question for you. Go. You have a favorite snake moment? Oh, man, I have like 1,000 of those. <laughs> Do you have a favorite I, snake, first of all? Yeah, I, and I also have a favorite whale moment. What? Okay, I feel like any whale moment is someone's favorite whale moment oh, because no. they're so good. No, this one is just out of the charts. Okay, we got to hear the whale moment okay, now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, We'll skip right. the snakes because you have too many of them. So we'll go to whales. Okay, so um, I was a natural history teacher for Aquinas College in Michigan. If anyone oh, yeah. from Michigan is listening, I send them a big hug as well. Um, That's us. And We're both from Michigan. So there thanks you for go. the hug. Okay, so, okay, yeah. 
big one, big one. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> so, um, we went in a banana boat. It's a thing that gets dragged from a speedboat and then they go uh, around and they try for you to fall from the banana boat. Like a right? weird looking tube. Exactly. Okay. A banana looking tube. Okay. And so I'm, I was very young when I was a teacher there. I'm always playing. So I was jumping in the banana and my boss was with me. He's this guy who is an opera singer. He's 70 years old and he's in the banana. He's just going like, Andres, stop, stop. And by this time, I jumped from the banana. I was just hanging from the banana. And the banana was going really fast. And I wasn't able to return to the banana. I was like, stop, oh, God, it's not me. It's not me. And <laughs> jumping in the banana. I'm about to let go, right? I'm so tired. Arms are knackered. And suddenly the banana comes to a full stop. 10 meters away from us or less, a whale breaches. And then falls. And we all are completely quiet and we couldn't believe this was happening. And then the calf breaches as well with the mom and poof, falls and the boat moves, right, with the whales. That's the closest I've been to a whale. It was a humbug whale. Yeah, that is the northern population. They go down to Costa Rica. Funny thing, when they meet with the southern population, they have something called cultural exchange. That means that they add a note from the other population to their song. And when they come back next year, they have another note in their calls. Isn't that crazy? That is amazing. I wonder that's if birds like, do something similar. That's like your version of offering us Costa Rican rum. I don't know what we can give to you. We gave you some stickers, I guess. <laughs> that was no, our wait. cultural exchange. No, wait, wait, wait. I sent the tattoos first. That's right, tattoos. All right, fine. So, Would you wear a t-shirt for a Birdship podcast? Of course. Okay, you may be getting a t-shirt. I'm a fan. I'm your Toronto biggest fan. That's 100%. That's definitely true. true. <laughs> I, I went to drink with you guys, um, and I'm here in the podcast now. That's All right. The right. so, favorite snake is one that I haven't seen. It's called the black-headed Bushmaster. This is the biggest venomous snake in America. So it's four meters long. I want nothing to do with that stuff. I, I love snakes. I absolutely love snakes. It's endemic to Costa Rica. You can only see it there. But it lives deep inside the tropical forest. And I can see your eyes shining right now, Zara. I can see them. <laughs> I'm so into snakes. Like, I used to catch gardener snakes. So, announcement to listeners, Snake Shit Podcast coming soon. <laughs> I, know, I don't know enough about snakes, but I absolutely love snakes. Do we know enough about birds? No, we do not. We just got owned on our own podcast. <laughs> I think my biggest strength as the Urban Program Coordinator for Bird Studies Canada is that I'm a new birder as well. So I confront the same challenges that people confront. I can relate and I get engaged with the idea of discovering birds, not knowing all the names and then fighting to get them right. I have to say one of my favorite moments in like my very novice time of birding was when I was on a work trip and my coworker and I ended up hanging out and I brought my binoculars and then we saw one bird and it was just a nuthatch. Like it was a very like normal bird, but she got so excited IDing it. And like we used the eBird app and like, we just like had fun with that. And she was like, that was so much fun. Like, even just like the puzzle, I think she was more into like the puzzle of it, of like, okay, what is it? Are we going to figure it out? Maybe not necessarily the bird part, but like she really connected with it. And then she was like, yeah, my husband and I are going to go birding now. And I'm like, 
that's so fun because it was just like on a random afternoon like it was like 3 p.m like no wonder we weren't seeing anything but yeah it was like so much fun and I think like that connection and finding what people do connect to in birding is fun what's yours Mo my spark bird or my bird love or what is my what favorite moment oh favorite moment I it's got to be Point Pele, right? Yeah, Point Pele was good. No, I was actually just thinking about this. I, I've reached a new point in my birding journey. The one bird that I really want to see is a scarlet tanager. And I had a dream last night that I saw one. I'm like, <laughs> I am birding in my dreams now. Like, who does that? And even in my dreams, I was like, oh, that was a scarlet tanager. And then I was like, why aren't I flying? Like, I'm in my own dream. And all I'm interested in is like, IDing birds. <laughs> why am I not the scarlet tanager here? I know. This... Oh, I know. So many That's possibilities. So and I'm IDing the thing. I know. It's like my dreams are very mundane, apparently. But it was super exciting. That's my most recent exciting birding moment. The one that didn't right. really happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So which one of the ones that happened? Uh, <laughs> Real life you? ones? I think one of the ones that comes to mind was this past spring. My husband took me to the Montrose Beach Bird Sanctuary, I suppose. And we were there. And it was my, his first time going birding with me. And it was migration season. There was like a ton of shit that had flown in there, like all kinds of stuff. And he was like, so into it. Like I basically like gave him the phone and I was like, you do all the tracking and I'm going to like figure out what we see. And we were just like going on and then you'd be like, Hey, there's some people over here. Like they're talking about this one thing. Da, 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 da. So we saw like a yellow billed cuckoo, which was really cool. And he got like super into cat birds because they were like on the yeah. ground, like digging around. And he's like, that's my favorite bird. I was like, cool. Like rocket, like they're cat birds. So <laughs> I think kind of like Sarah said, like sharing birds with somebody else and like watching them engage with it and like light up is so cool i do see a tendency that my best moments are definitely shared for me my birding moments are when i find something cool or when i see something cool with a friend we'll get kind of railed out because of it and really excited about it so it brings a lot of joy to share it yeah, it's like validation that it happened too. Like you with that owl, right? Like if it had just been you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. it, then it didn't exist, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could have been having a dream. That happens. Like, I don't I've know. I've seen a Tanager. Did I? <laughs> have I? Did I? Uh, 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 yeah, I know. Oh, what is reality? Time has no <laughs> meaning. Okay, well, that was a little too deep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Back in, back in yeah. a way. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about or share that we haven't already discussed so far? I have an online bird course for beginners bird watchers, and this is totally an announcement and a promotion for me. It's called Finding Birds and Happiness. And it's if you cannot tell the difference between the blackbird and a peregrine hawk, this course is for you. <laughs> it's literally for people that know nothing about birding and they are just curious about it or would like to learn more it's in a platform called udemy and you find it through udemy.com slash birdwatching it usually costs a hundred dollars but given that i love birdshit podcast i'm going to create a code called birdshit and if you use the code birdshit you can get it for fifteen dollars so i'm doing that today awesome. <laughs> for all of you that are wanting to learn bird watching, just go to udemy and use Birdshit, all in caps. And the final lessons of my course is called Birdwatching in Costa Rica. So if you want to learn how to go to Costa Rica and birdwatch, just go to the final lesson. 
I think that is an awesome thing because I feel like that's a huge tourism thing is the ecology that brings people to Costa Rica. So yeah. I would definitely yeah. take this course. Yeah, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. I, I'm excited. I, yeah, I've received some good feedback. How long has it been going now? It's been going for seven months, I say, I think. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks yeah. for joining us. This is yeah. awesome. You can be our Costa Rican correspondent by way of Canada. <laughs> well, you heard it from Andreas, folks. Use the code BIRDSHIT, that's B-I-R-D-S-H-I-T, no spaces, all caps, to get his Udemy Beginner Birder course for only $15. You can find a link to his course, Finding Birds and Happiness, in the podcast notes for this episode, or visit the ornithology section of Udemy. Andreas's class is the highest rated course in the ornithology section. And now that you've listened to his stories and experiences, I'm sure you can see why. We were delighted to chat with Andreas today and hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a burning bird question or someone you'd like us to interview in future episodes, send us an email at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. Stay up to date with the latest bird shit on Instagram by following at birdshitpodcast. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies. Yeah, no, no, we can do a show from Costa Rica. Dude. Yeah, I know where I can be at York's campus because I worked there with a toad that I found that has disappeared for the last 30 years. It's called Harlequin Toad. Sarah, Google that. Did you refine the species? Yes. Dude, that is a huge thing. Ah, not that big. It's the fourth population. <laughs> Humble toad brag. Rediscovered a species that's been missing for 30 years. It could have been a new species. That is one of the biggest moments I've had with wildlife is finding that toad. It looks like it's a poisonous dart frog. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a humble brag, right? Uh, I know. Are, they? <laughs> are they venomous? They are, but not as much as the poisonous dart frog. I dedicated maybe two weeks of walking through this place four or five hours a day, early in the morning from 5 to 10 a.m. until I found the first one. And that moment is a feeling that I will never forget in my life. It must cool. have brought you so much like relief slash joy. Yeah, because I it was very that's... frustrating. <laughs> yeah. You have to keep walking all this time. And I will find you. And suddenly it was there and I just couldn't believe it. Next episode, I'll bring the catalog I have. So I have them from their belly and up so I can ID them, photo ID. Some of them had names. One was Bob. The other one was Diego. And creative. I would visit them to their places every day. And only I know where they are because I've hidden the location. Holy cow.